Tonight's reading is from Matthew chapter 27, starting at verse 55. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to him, them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You were to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority and heaven, in heaven and on earth, is given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is God's word. Thank you very much. Do keep that page uh, open. I find it satisfying that we're on page 1,000. That may just be me, uh, but do keep that open. That'll be a great help. And uh, if you're here this morning and think that reading sounds familiar, that's because it's the same uh, as you had this morning. But the good news is uh, Stephen was looking at the, the end of the chapter this morning. We're looking at the first half, really. If we'd coordinated, we'd done it the other way around. Uh, but there we are. If you want more on the end, I was out with the kids this morning. I'm told Stephen's sermon was excellent. I'll be getting it when it appears on the website. Uh, shall we pray? as we come together to God's word. Our Father, we thank you that you speak to us and that you speak to us in the reality of our lives, of our situations. And as we'll hear the angel and Jesus say to us tonight, don't be afraid. We thank you that you know the situations. You know who comes here, particularly in fear. You know the things that will happen in the next year that we will be afraid of. And so, Father, we ask that you would speak to each one of us as we need this evening, that those words, do not be afraid, by your Spirit would live in us, that you would give us confidence in Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. Uh, Someone has seen on the news the things that are going on in Kenya at the moment. This uh, Archbishop, the Archbishop of the Church of England, uh, the Anglican Church in Kenya, uh, Wabi Kala, uh, posted this on Friday. My dear brothers and sisters, on this Good Friday we gather in our churches across Kenya in the shadow of a great and terrible evil. People who deal in death have slaughtered 147 people in Garissa, most of them students, and brought wrenching anguish to their families and deep sadness to our nation. These young people died because they were Kenyans and they were Christians. This attack was a calculated manifestation of evil designed to destroy our nation and our faith, but... At Easter, we're reminded that the very worst evil can do is not the last word. Jesus' death upon the cross was not in vain. By his death, death has been destroyed. The stone rolled away, and the empty tomb of Jesus assures us that death does not have the last word. The question will be asked really this evening by Matthew 28 is, are you afraid? We sung a moment ago, Through all life's sorrows and despairs I will not be moved. When facing death, I need not fear. And for some, of course, here, uh, death will have come close at some point, whether that's to our own illness, whether that's through burying, close family, close friends. For many of us living in a time, a place, as we do, it's easy still to feel immortal. Uh, that death, it's a theoretical thing, it happens to some people, never happened to me. And so if it has come near, when it does come near, those words that we've sung, I need not be afraid, uh, the words of Archbishop Wabi Kala, can we really say those? <laughs> and Matthew 28 would say yes. There is one rock, one solid foundation. If you stand on that, you can say, without being trite, without being superficial, when the worst comes, I'm not afraid. And the one rock, the one solid place where you can stand and say that is that Jesus has risen. In short, that's what Matthew 28 will say. Before we get to it though, I think probably 
many of us here, certainly many in London, would say, well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I mean, Jesus' resurrection, that's a fun story for the children this time of year, along with the Easter bunny, the, the true meaning of Easter. Uh, it's a fun story. It's a fairy story. It's a pipe dream, surely. If you're going to try and build your life on it, if you're trying to build comfort on it, that's getting ridiculous. So... Before we get into the meat of Matthew 28, let's just think for a moment about a couple of, yeah, hold on, what about? A couple of hold on, what abouts, if that was a word. Uh, what about science? What about wish fulfillment? We'll think about those two uh, briefly, then get into the meat of it. What about science? You're going to say Jesus risen from the dead, or what about science? Richard Dawkins was saying the God delusion, miracles by their definition violate the principles of science. Miracles, by their definition, violate the principles of science. He would say, uh, Jesus' resurrection, that's something that's possible to believe in the first century, when basically people were idiots uh, who thought that fairies floated around and thought that dead people didn't stay dead. They just thought that was a normal thing. They were idiots in the first century. But now that we have science, that we have uh, holidays to the moon being advertised, now that we have smartphones in our pockets, now you can't believe in Jesus' resurrection. Or any miracles. Miracles, by their definition, violate the principles of science. But I think that at that point, Richard Dawkins is pulling a bit of a fast one as he says that. Because, as I understand it, uh, science is built on observation, not declaration. Let me explain what I mean by that. Observation, not declaration. Imagine a scientist who wants to know uh, whether stones will sink. For some reason, she's got into adult life without knowing the answer to that question. She's decided to do an experiment. Will stones sink? And so she gets a big tank of water and a whole bunch of stones that she pulls in from the park, and she drops them into the water, different stones, different sizes, different speeds, different heights, and every time a stone hits the water, it sinks. And she observes that. She does observation. And so she comes up with a theory. Stones that hit water sink. And she writes it up, and it's a good theory. It fits the observations so far. But the next week, she's going for a walk in the park, and she sees a boy in the park pick up a stone and throw it. And it bounces as it hits the water. She's skimming a stone across the lake. At that point, she's got two options. One is she can do observation. She can observe that this time the stone hit the water and didn't sink. Okay, uh, that's an observation. I'm going to take that back, and I'm going to rework my theory. Under certain conditions, sometimes stones don't sink. Option two, she can do declaration. That didn't happen. She can do that if she wants to. That didn't happen. My theory says that stones sink. That stone did not bounce. It sunk. Message free to do either of those, but we all know that option one, observation, is science, and option two is silly. Now, I think you can apply the same thing to the resurrection, to Jesus' resurrection. If you want, you can declare that based on what we've observed, dead people stay dead. Always. Every time. Without exception. You can declare that, if you like. And when you hear the eyewitness testimony, Jesus rose from the dead, you can say, that did not happen. I already know that did not happen because of my theory. But I don't think you can call that science. I think if you want to call it science, you have to listen. Listen to the evidence See what happened and rework your theory. Maybe something like dead people say dead, stay dead unless God says otherwise. Maybe something like that is a better theory when you take into account the evidence. 
So science can't rule out beforehand Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Science needs to listen to the evidence. And that brings us to our second what about. What about science? But then what about wish fulfillment? Because the evidence comes from eyewitnesses, eyewitness testimony. And what about wish fulfillment? Isn't it the case that Jesus' disciples, his friends, who wrote the gospel accounts in the Bible, they so wanted Jesus to come back to life. They so wanted it that they made it happen. Either by deception, they stole the body so that they could spread a story, that's what really happened, or just psychologically, they snapped. They started seeing things, they started believing things. They so wanted it to be true that they made themselves believe it. What about wish fulfillment? Well, you can put together a pretty good defense against that line of argument. Uh, that the, the resurrection just happened, or the story of the resurrection just came about because Jesus' disciples wanted it to be true. Uh, you can point out that uh, no one ever managed to produce Jesus' body. Within weeks of Jesus' death, people are in Jerusalem where he was killed, proclaiming his resurrection, and no one once produced a body. The vast majority of those eyewitnesses who declared it were killed for refusing to ever admit they'd made it up. Keeping lives easy, just say, yeah, we made it up. None of them did. And the astonishing change, the explosive growth of Christianity doesn't feel like the sort of thing that could come out of the minds of a bunch of madmen. So I think it's fairly easy to make a defense against that charge. But actually Matthew doesn't go there. You see, Matthew was, at the time when he was writing, confronted with claims that the resurrection story was wish fulfillment, that Jesus' disciples had just made it happen. And he doesn't go on the defensive. He goes on the offensive. He says wish fulfillment. Okay, we can talk about that. But the charge cuts both ways. Uh, That's the business with the soldiers that sort of brackets the main section of Matthew 28. That's what's going on. Uh, So just have a look back. Uh, Chapter 27. Uh, If you're new to reading the Bible, the big numbers we call chapter numbers. The small numbers are verse numbers. So just before uh, the big 28, we're looking at verse 57. The small number 57 in the left-hand column. Sorry, the small number 62. The next day, the one after the preparation day, So this is on the Saturday. The chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I'll rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. And so Pilate sends them off with the guard and they seal the tomb and make sure no one can get in. Then just drop down to 28 verse 11. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that happened. They reported this lightning-bright angel came down from heaven. There was a huge earthquake. He rolled the stone away and sat on it. That's what they reported to the chief priests. Verse 12. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So at the time Matthew's writing, people are saying it's wish fulfillment. They wanted it to be so true, so true, they wanted it to be true so much, they faked it. They made this story come out of nothing. And Matthew's saying, slow down. That charge cuts both ways. You see, these chief priests who look like they're so concerned about truth, uh, this deceiver said, after three days I'll rise again. When confronted with the evidence, 
when confronted with a truth that they don't like, we'll make up a lie and cover it up. We'll find some money, we'll find some, some way, we'll find some way of covering it up, putting out deception. And the reason is, well, it's what we said at the start of the service, we, that ancient Christian declaration, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. That is the unbreakable logic of the Bible, that Jesus who rose and ascended into heaven will return in just the same way as judge. And these men know that. They know that if Jesus is risen, then he has claims over their lives. He has authority over their lives. He has the authority to judge their lives. They don't want it to be true. They're so desperate for it not to be true. They'll believe any lie. They'll spread any lie to shut it down. And I think the same thing happens today. So it's striking, you listen to uh, the so-called new atheists, men like uh, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, uh, Stephen Hawking, Christopher Hitchens, and not one of them engages with the resurrection of Jesus, ever. It's not that they argue against it and say, here's the reasons we think it didn't happen, they just ignore it. There's no mention of it. A couple of weeks ago, I was listening to an interview with a philosopher, not something I normally do, but someone recommended it uh, to me. Quite an interesting podcast. But um, this particular thing, one philosopher being interviewed about his work, he is an expert in Christian philosophy, so he described himself, though not a Christian himself. And he was asked, do you believe in life after death? And he said, well, I don't know, but I've never seen any evidence for life after death. And in fact, I don't even know what evidence for life after death would look like. And at that point, I wanted to take off the earphones and scream into them, I do, I know what evidence for life after death would look like. Jesus coming back to life, that would be a clue. That would be evidence. And he knows it too. He's an expert in Christian thought, Christian philosophy. And he didn't say, now of course some people think Jesus rose from the dead and here's the three reasons why I don't. That would be one thing. He said, I can't even imagine what evidence for the resurrection would look like. Now look, I don't know the man, I just listened to an interview. But I found it hard to listen to that and not to think there is some sort of wish fulfillment going on. He's hearing things, he's processing things through a grid of what he wants to be true. He doesn't want Jesus to have risen because then Jesus will come again as judge. And so he says, I can't even imagine what the evidence would look like. So what about science? Science says you can't prejudge until you've looked at the evidence. A wish fulfillment, you can talk about that. But the charge cuts both ways. And again, will we come and listen to the evidence, listen to the eyewitnesses, who with one voice, from just weeks after the death of Jesus, are saying, he is risen. He is risen. And on that truth, Matthew says, you can build this. Do not be afraid. In particular, two things Matthew says. Don't be afraid of death. Don't be afraid of failure. Because neither one will be the end. The Archbishop said from Kenya, neither one will have the last word. Not death, not failure. Because Jesus has been raised. As a long introduction, there's what abouts. Here we get into the meat of it. Uh, Matthew 28. Death. Your death is not the end, says Matthew. And of course, that is what Matthew 28 is all about. It's what Easter Sunday is all about. Jesus risen from the dead. Death is not the end. But before we get there, we need to spend a little bit of time with the women. 
who've been watching. Uh, now, someone know, uh, Matthew, uh, this uh, account of Jesus' life, uh, kind of alternates between different sections. So you have a, a block of teaching, a long sermon from Jesus, and then a block of action, and then a sermon, and then action, and sermon, and then action. And uh, those of us who were here September, October, we heard the last sort of sermon block in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 23 to 25. And then 26 to 28, we're in the last action section as things are going on. And in chapters 26 and 27, it's been men who've been driving the action all the way through. It is men in those chapters, the story of Jesus' arrest and trial and execution. Uh, It's men who have betrayed and promised and arrested and lied and questioned and beaten. It was men that killed Jesus. And then all of a sudden, chapter 27, verse 55, Matthew tells us, Many women were there, watching from a distance. They'd followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. These women, they'd been serving Jesus for many years, following him to care for his needs. And now they can do nothing but watch. In the culture of the day, these sort of events, arrests, uh, trials, those are things that women wouldn't be part of. All they could do is watch and listen for reports of what's going on. And of course, now that Jesus died, there's nothing really anyone can do apart from watch. And that's what these women do. To be sure, there's the brief flurry of activity as Joseph uh, gets down the body and prepares it for burial and puts it in the tomb. But then look at verse 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Just sitting there, watching. Chapter 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week on Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. That's what these women are doing. They are watching, they're sitting, they're looking. There's nothing else to do. It is one of the great tragedies of death. And we feel it more acutely, actually, when it's the death of someone else that we love rather than facing our own. Just helplessness. Desperately trying to think of words that will help somehow. Just watching as doctors rush around, trying to prolong the inevitable, knowing there's nothing we can do to help. Then a brief flurry of activity is there's a funeral to be arranged and legal matters to be sorted out, and then nothing to do apart from sit at a graveside and watch and remember. That's got to be one of the reasons why in the 21st century we, we ignore death, we push it away as far as possible, we don't want to think about it. It's been well said that for the Victorians, uh, sex was the great taboo and death was everywhere. Death was everywhere. Uh, generations would live together, elderly relatives would live with younger generations, you'd watch them sicken and die, you'd see death. For us, sex is everywhere and death is the great taboo. We send people to hospitals, we send people to nursing homes. People die away from us. Separately, we don't see it. And that means we can hide from our own mortality. It means we can hide from our helplessness. That there's nothing we can do. But Matthew 28 says, even death isn't something that you need to hide from. Matthew 28 says you can look death full on in the face and not be afraid because of what the women saw that they were never expecting. Look down at verse 2. 
Chapter 28, verse 2. After in chapter 27, there was a great stone rolled across the tomb to keep Jesus' body where it was meant to be. Look at verse 2. There was a violent, or literally there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, he rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him, they shook and became like dead men. The guards are afraid of him. I imagine you and I would have been as well. But the angel knows the women have a different fear. In verse 5, the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. They're afraid because Jesus is dead. Their friend, their hope, they dared to wonder their God, are now dead. The story's over. It's the end. Until, but the angel says, do not be afraid. And he's able to say that because, verse 6, he's not here, he's risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he's risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. It's a lovely thing the way Matthew tells it. The angel says, don't be afraid, and they go away with a mixture. As it described verse 7, as it verse 8, afraid yet filled with joy. There's a mixture. Fear, joy, what's going on? Jesus sees them. They see Jesus and they just worship. Because Jesus says, do not be afraid. This last week, I've been in Wales. Uh, some of our students have been there at a conference, a holiday combination of the two called Word Alive. I've been uh, teaching children this week, it's sort of a Bible holiday club. We had 200 children packed in a tent in Wales, uh, teaching the Bible, doing all sorts of other fun things as well. And uh, the first night, kids are always a bit nervous coming in, uh, away from parents. They don't know exactly what's going to happen as they're somewhere new. Crowd of 200 kids, that's quite exciting for some, terrifying for others. Uh, and then we're in this giant tent with 50 mile an hour winds coming off uh, the North Welsh Sea, and it's noisy inside the tent. We've been assured, uh, structurally it's safe, we're fine, but the thing's flapping around all over the place, the ceiling's going, the sides are going all over the place. Children are nervous. But we get them in, we're having fun, we distract them, uh, all going well, until we're gathered at the front listening to a talk. And unbeknown to the kids, we've got 200 balloons up in the ceiling, uh, ready to drop down for a game later on. And one of them at that moment decides to pop. With a bang that echoes around the tent, and suddenly you've got children looking in every direction, at the walls, at the ceiling, what's going on, looking at each other. Until the leader at the front, calmly, quietly, we're safe. Don't worry, we're safe. And you see a car around the room. The children didn't know what was going on. None of them were trained as engineers. They didn't know what wind speeds the tent could take before we all took off into the air. Uh, they didn't know that the balloons were in the ceiling. They didn't know what was going on. And they didn't need to. All they needed to know was an adult was at the front and he did. He knew what was going on and he could say, you're safe. And that is Jesus here. Death is confusing, it's bewildering, it's terrifying. We don't understand it. We hate it. 
We can't see through it. But Jesus is the man, the first man in history to go through death, come out the other side, and he can say with confidence, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's not the end. It's a balloon pop. The tent is not coming down. Now, we want to be clear that there's lots of things Jesus isn't saying about death when he says, don't be afraid. He's not saying death is nothing. The Bible would never say that. Jesus himself, just a couple of weeks earlier, at the graveside of one of his friends, who he knew that minutes later he's going to rise, uh, raise from the dead, and yet Jesus there, he weeps and he rages. Jesus would say, even now, even though he's been risen, death is an enemy to hate. It's to be grieved, but not to be feared. Not to be feared. Jesus has been through death and come out the other side. And for all who, like these women, clasp him, cling on to him, hold on to him, he will take all who hold on to him through death, through the path that he's walked, and say, don't, don't be afraid. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Your death is not the end. And then secondly in this chapter, don't be afraid. Your failure is not the end. Your failure is not the end. And to see that, we need to recognize this whole chapter has a direction. This whole chapter, Matthew 28, is going towards Galilee. I just sit down, verse 7, these are the words of the angels. The angel, uh, then go quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead and is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you'll see him. Verse 10, Jesus says the same thing. Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they'll see me. And then drop down to verse 16, they get there. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now that doubt is not, is this Jesus, isn't it? Uh, what's going on? We're a bit confused. Is he really alive? Is it a ghost? Are we... That's not the doubt here. We know from the other Gospels that by this point, Jesus already appeared to them. He's proven that he's alive. He's proven it's really him. He's eaten with them. Uh, this, that's not what the doubt here is. It is just worth flicking back. Uh, two pages, page 996. Page 996. This is the last time Jesus talked about Galilee. But they've now gone. And look down, chapter, uh, verse 31. On page 996. Then Jesus told them, this very night, this is the night before Jesus killed. This very night you'll all fall away on account of me, for it's written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the cock crows, you'll disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Jesus was right, and they were wrong. All of them fled as the soldiers arrived. All of them hid as the trial was going on. Peter, the most bold here, the most confident in his faithfulness to Jesus, as Jesus is bravely, stoically standing up under trial, Peter's outside, so terrified of a big, important, scary... No, that's not how it goes. So terrified of a servant girl that he's blubbing out. I never even met Jesus. Jesus' friends have failed him big time when he needs them. 
And now they've been told to go to Galilee. Galilee is the place. Jesus says, when you failed me, go to Galilee, I'll meet you there. Galilee is the place where you go to meet with Jesus after you've failed. That's why they're doubting. What sort of reception is this going to be? And so they're shuffling up the hill. No one wants to be in the front. Eyes are down on the ground. (laughs) They worship him. He's risen. He's God. But they doubt. What sort of reception will this be? What words are we going to hear from Jesus who we failed? And so he says, verse 18, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, I condemn you to hell where you belong because of what you've done. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, spend your lives groveling and apologizing. And we'll see if that makes up for it. Therefore, get out of my sight. I never want to see you again. No, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. The disciples come doubting. What words are we going to hear from Jesus? And they hear words of astonishing grace and kindness and forgiveness and restoration. You're not going to, you're not going to be banished. You're not going to spend the rest of your life on the subs bench, watching while better people have a go. There's restoration. Go. Make disciples. Serve. There's still useful work for you to do. Oh, these words, of course, mean that their failure isn't the end of Jesus' mission. Just follow through the alls. Let me read it again. Uh, verse 18. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Jesus says that all nations need to obey all that he's commanded because he has all authority in heaven and earth over every country, over every individual. And so Jesus' mission isn't going to be thwarted. He's not sitting in heaven watching their failure or ours thinking, oh, I was go- it was going to be so good and now, now it's all fallen through. Sitting in heaven frustrated, thwarted, unable to do what he wants. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Our failure is not the end of his mission. But even more wonderfully for them and for us, our failure isn't the end of our involvement in his mission either. They come to him, they failed, they come to Galilee, and Jesus says, go again. Go and serve again. There's still useful work to do. And the very last sentence there, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Not, I'm with you until you bog it up again. And that's two warnings in your out. Not while I'm in a good mood. Not until I find better potential. I'm with you always to the end of the age. Surely. Their failure is not the end. Not of Jesus' mission and not of their involvement in Jesus' mission. They fail, they go to Galilee, and they're sent out again. Again, in Wales this week, it wasn't just me and 200 kids in a tent. We had a team of about 30, 
children's workers, youth workers from around the country uh, gather together. Some uh, I know well, I've known for years, some I just met last week. Uh, but talking with different people, uh, these are some of the people we had uh, on the team. We had one ex-teacher who had to leave his job uh, years ago. Uh, he was uh, fired because of misconduct. We had one student on the team who, as a teenager, before she was a Christian, had made some very bad decisions. Uh, some of the consequences still haunting her now. We had a bloke on the team who'd spent his 20s as a Christian, sleeping around, cheating on the woman who's now his wife. And of course, those are some of the headlines. If we'd gone around the team, every one of us, if you'd asked, would have admitted to greed and to pride and to jealousy and to lust and to envy, even the week that we were there. And so I didn't ask anyone, but I'm sure if I had, every one of us there at some point would have heard the words, the lie in our ear. You shouldn't be here. (laughs) You should not be here. You're not good enough to be here. After what you did years ago, after what you did last week, you come here on a Christian team daring to teach children the Bible. You should not be here. Go home. But in the Lord's kindness, the Lord's goodness, none of us did go home. And that's because each one had failed. Some in big, obvious ways, some in subtle, internal ways. Each of us had failed Jesus. And each of us, metaphorically, had gone to Galilee. Not literally, bank holiday tomorrow, you don't have to book a a plane ticket. But metaphorically, had gone to Galilee, had gone to meet Jesus, having failed had confessed sin, had determined to repent and leave it behind, and gone to Jesus. And he had said, go, make disciples. Make disciples. I wonder if you know that feeling yourself, coming to Jesus, worship and doubting mixed together. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is the time where he says, that's enough. I've had it. Surely he can't be again patient. Surely he can't be again kind. Surely he can't again put up with me. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to weigh everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Do not be afraid, says Jesus in Matthew 28. Your death is not the end. Jesus has risen and he will take people the path that he's walked through death into life. Your failure is not the end. Those who come to Jesus at Galilee are sent out again to serve him again and again and again, and again. So as you wake up tomorrow morning after a bank holiday lie-in, you can say to yourself, whatever happens today, all sin will be forgiven, all tears will be wiped away, every sacrifice will be rewarded. What do I want to do 
for Jesus today. As you wake up on Tuesday, far too early, ready to go to work, all sin will be forgiven, every tear will be wiped away, every sacrifice rewarded. What do you want to do for Jesus today? The angel says, Matthew says, Jesus says, do not be afraid. Should we pray together? Our Father, we praise you that Jesus is uh, your man for us. And we praise that he comes to us with all authority, but not to be harsh, not to be overbearing, but to reassure, to give confidence, to give comfort. Father, I do pray for uh, all here who particularly this week, this month, this year is a fearful year. Please would you grow in us a confidence that Jesus is risen and in him, with him, holding on to him, there's nothing else we need fear. Father, please do help us to comfort one another uh, with these words that Jesus is risen. Amen.